Uh, last week we did baptisms. Here's a picture. Uh, you were all invited. Uh, apparently, you know, we, we had like about 100 and 120 maybe people come to it. Ate all the hamburgers. It was great. But uh, it was a lady called Mary Ellen. This Luke's grandmother's it is her is her house, and so she lets us use it all the time. So I wanted to thank you to her. Thank you to Jess Homequist for putting all the food together and getting you all there. That's great. And for Rick to share for cooking the hamburgers. And then David showed up and made the bacon, which is always important because. I just, just pour the grease in the cup. It's good. I'll just take that. It's bacon. Anything's better with bacon. And, um, and uh, Eddie made the, the buns. So if you like toasty buns for your burger. Yeah. That's all I got. Now I'm going to start and just yell at you for, for 30 minutes, right? All right. Why don't you stand there reading God's word? This is First uh, John 2.15. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would help us to understand what uh, these words actually mean. What it means to love you and to live our lives in such a way that maybe sometimes people will hate us simply because we love you. But help that not to deter us. Have us be a body of people who love and serve and follow you as our God. Amen. Have a seat. If you are new, we are going through the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, you can open to John chapter 15. But before we get there today, uh, i got to get you a little concept that you can understand of what John's concept of the world is. Uh, some of you, if you're raised in a religious home or church all your life, hear that worldliness is anything outside the church. All the good things and all the good people are in the church and all the bad people and everything is outside the church. But if you've been in a church for more than five minutes, you understand that worldliness exists within the church as well. And not everything and everyone in the church is exactly like Jesus. FYI, in case you didn't know. Hey. And now we can't run around and say everything in the world is bad as everything was made by God. They may not be fully glorifying and reflecting as they are capable of, but they still have potential to be used for God's glory in a healthy and a positive way. So when we talk about worldliness, we talk about a system of belief that is opposed to the will of God, that is opposed to the way of God. That is worldliness. The ways many times in which the world thinks and acts in light of its presuppositions about who God is, is worldliness. And so last week, I'm going to summarize what Jesus says. He says, this is going to be great. I will love you. You will love me. We will love each other. And then this week, he says, oh, and by the way, there's a group of people that we are going to call the world, and they will hate you and hate your guts and try and cut your head off, by the way. Okay, so that's kind of where he goes. And that's what we're going to look at. Uh, John 15, starting in verse 18. We're going to read through this entire thing, then talk about it. So Jesus starts like this, the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, so you're in good company. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they believed my teaching, they, they will... If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason." 
When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. 16 verse 1, All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. And by the way, I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. So it's like we've had this great journey together, and I didn't tell you this at first. They are going to kill you. Lucky you. Be my disciples, okay? Now, this is hours before Jesus' death. Judas has put his plan into action to betray Jesus, and he gives his disciples some concluding ideas. John's gospel really begins to slow down right here. He is different from all the other gospels. It's like a filmmaker that begins to zoom in on something he really wants you to see. And John, you see, he kind of races through Jesus' life, and he gets to the last week, and he totally slows down. Then he gets to the last hours, and he really slows down so you can get some of the conversations that Jesus has with his disciple. You get, you get a much closer and deeper intimate look of who Jesus is. And Jesus tells his students that people are going to try to kill them. He says, you, as my disciples, people will reject you. But the rejection is not of you. The rejection is of God our Father. So the question becomes, why? Why will, if we love others, why if we live in the way of Jesus, will people hate us? The answer is that he has come into the world as light. And people live in darkness and they hate the light because light exposes darkness. If you love God to any degree in your life, there will be people who will not like you and don't want to be around you because you are reflecting God's light into darkness. And people love darkness. If you walk with God uprightly by the virtue of your life, you will expose the crookedness of things that are around you and people hate that people want to get rid of you because they don't want to repent and change and they want to sin and you will begin to bother them not because you are even holding signs that says stop sinning sinner but just by virtue of your life and how you live you can even apologize i've done this before i'm like i'm sorry i love you what can i do and that just makes them even more mad and makes them want to punch you in the face because you're like i'm sorry what can i do you can stop being so nice Okay, jerk, what can I do? You know, and, and you want to try and figure that out. They want you to start sinning with them so they don't look so bad. So they don't look so bad. By you not sinning, people tend to look worse. If you have a marriage and you love each other and you speak tenderness into each other's lives, people around you with bad marriages will begin not to want to hang out with you because they can't stand you. I was doing a, a wedding a few weeks ago, and I'm standing with, with the groom and the best man's next to him, and the bride starts walking down the aisle. And, the, and I hear the best man lean over to the groom, and he goes, you better remember this is the best she's ever going to look. <laughs> and, I, and I look over, and I go, she will get more beautiful every day of your life. Amen. I said, she, I, I go, she is your standard of beauty, and every day of your life, my, my wife, okay, my wife, I think she is more beautiful today than the day I met her. Every day I love her more. Every day she is more hot. Okay? <laughs> every day. <laughs> Drives her nuts because I'm all hands. And she's like, stop it. It's, it's okay. So I look over, you know, and, and, I, and I say, she will get more beautiful every day. And she hates it when I talk like that. But, and, and, she, and I say, every day of her life, she'll get more and more beautiful. And his, and his best man goes, nope. He goes, who are you going to listen to? I've known you longer. And I'm like, dude, I've been married 17 years. His best man, the guy's marriage is falling apart. And I'm thinking, yeah, who are you going to listen to? Okay. His best man didn't really like me very much. But you see, that's why. That's why. 
When we become a measure of God's grace to the world around us, Jesus says we can expect negative reactions from people. It does not mean that we go out and declare a culture war or pick an issue to get people to hate us. It simply means that our declaring love many times is a declaration of war to people because people hate that. Now this morning, I want to show you from history how Jesus' words have indeed come to pass. First, I'm going to show you how the disciples die. I'm going to show you a couple martyrs. I'm going to show you some stuff going on today and then some introspection about ourselves where I'm going to be very sarcastic as if that's anything new. <laughs> now, uh, the disciples essentially carry along this whole idea of the legacy of Cain and Abel. You know, from Genesis chapter 4, Cain is jealous because Abel worships God. He is jealous of that. And eventually Cain kills Abel simply because Abel worships God. He wasn't provoking Cain. He's just worshiping God. You get to the disciples and you begin to see this take place. Other than Jesus, the first martyr that you really see is a guy named Stephen in Acts 6 through 8. One of the first martyrs. Uh, he is a deacon. In the, he's not an elder. He's, not, he's just a, a deacon. Well, I'm not saying just, but you know, he's, he's, he's a deacon. He serves God faithfully. And this made people very angry. He essentially gets drugged before some religious people and asks him, why are you conducting your life this way? And so he goes, okay, I'll tell you. And he lays out the history of the Jewish nation, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all they have been looking for. And this makes them angry when they are the ones who asked in the first place, which is kind of insane. And one of these angry people is a guy named Saul who becomes Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. They go out and they kill Stephen for him loving God. He, Paul, who becomes Paul, oversees the stoning of Stephen. Paul actually says in his own writings, he is a persecutor of the church. He was a violent and he was a zealous man. And Stephen gets murdered for loving Jesus. The last thing Stephen does before he dies is he prays for those who are killing him. And not long after that, in Acts, God answers the prayer and Saul becomes Paul and becomes a Christian. It's amazing because when God takes Saul, he knocks him on his butt, he blinds him, he beats him up, and he says, you're not just persecuting Christians, you are persecuting me. So persecution is not just harming God's people, but Jesus as well. So Paul becomes a preacher and a teacher and a pastor, and he is eventually beheaded in Rome. Philip, you know, another one of the disciples, he is whipped, imprisoned, and then he is crucified. It almost seemed like the Romans liked to crucify the followers of Christians as a mockery to Jesus. You have Matthew. Matthew is killed with a long-handled axe or sword about five to six feet long. Got an ends in an axe with a little bayonet on the end. So if you're whacking, didn't kill somebody, you could just run them through. Okay, so that's Matthew was killed with one of those. James, the, the author of the book of James, Jesus' brother, at 94, he was beaten and stoned and his brains were crushed out of his head. Matthias, the guy who replaces Judas as the 12th disciple, was stoned and beheaded. It's customary at this time to cut somebody's head off, put it on a pike as a testimony, don't mess with the government, and don't worship what this guy worshipped. If you do, your head gets put on a pike so everybody can see it. Andrew, who was Peter's brother, one of the first disciples, he gets crucified. Now, when they used to crucify people, they would beat you before they sent you to your death to be crucified. Many times the beating itself would kill people. Jesus himself was, was scourged 39 times, the 40 lashes minus one, 39 times. He's got a leather strap with sharp hooks of metal and bone in it. They would strip you naked. They would hit you this thing and it would rip in and grab onto the muscle and they'd pull out and it would pull your muscle off of your bone. And they would slash you 39 times with this, give you a crossbar, and make you carry it to your own place of execution. And many people would die simply from that beating. Now, we don't know if Andrew actually had that done to him because Andrew hung on the cross for two days. Two days. 
Now, Andrew, being the guy that he was, didn't waste any opportunity for anything. And so he's up there hanging on the cross, and people are like, oh, it's the weekend. What should we do? Let's go watch some crucifixions. Okay. So they'd go out, and they'd watch crucifixions. And Andrew preached for two days. He'd talk about all the verses he memorized, talk about Jesus and how he wants to give you hope. He wants to give you a hope and a life with purpose. You can follow Jesus. And you may end up just like this. This is so different from what you hear on TV and the radio today. You know, it's like, oh, you love Jesus, you'll get a Bentley or a Mercedes. and you'll get a, you know. He's hanging on the cross. Follow Jesus. You may end up like this, but you will know a life no one else could ever imagine. And history tells you people actually believed when he was being crucified on the cross. Mark was torn apart by a mob. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten, crucified, and then beheaded. Just in case it wasn't enough, Thomas was run through with a spear. Luke was hanged. Simon was crucified. Peter was going to be crucified and said, no, I am not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So they crucified him upside down. James, who is John's brother, he's brought before a Roman official and given a death sentence. You're going to be beheaded. They asked, do you have any last words? And James says, yeah, I, I got some last words. And so he tells, talks about the gospel, and he drops the hammer on the official. He says, you're a sinful man, a reprobate, an enemy of God. You will die in your sins. You're destined for hell unless you have fellowship follow Jesus. What's your decision right now before you kill me? You know what the guy does, according to history? He believes. And he gets down. He gets beheaded right alongside James. Amazing. It's amazing. You know, and I mean... <laughs> You're going to kill me. I may as well tell you what I need to tell you. John, the guy who wrote the gospel, he outlives all the other apostles despite his attempted murder. At one point, uh, he gets boiled in oil and does not die. And people think, oh, wow, that's so wonderful, boiled in oil and, and doesn't die. Well, he lived the rest of his life probably scarred because of that event. But he never stops worshiping Jesus and telling people, you can worship Jesus just like I do. Look at me. This is great. They send him to isolation, the island of Patmos, where he writes the book of Revelation from. John is released from exile, and what does he do? He starts preaching again. John leads many of the church uh, pastors and trains them in the early church. He lives to be over 100 years old, saw almost all of his friends die. Most of the people in his church get killed, and yet he keeps preaching, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. And I think John recalls Jesus saying, don't be shocked when this happens. Because this is how it's going to go. Now, under Rome, persecution of the church becomes much more pronounced under a guy named Nero, who is a sociopath. Nero kills his nanny, his mother, his wife. He is violent. He is aggressive. And Nero wants to rebuild all of Rome in his own image. So Christianity at this point is kind of growing pretty quickly. It adopted cultural evangelism strategies, which we should also adopt today. At this time, people didn't have uh, social services or welfare. They had trade guilds. It's kind of like unions. They would come together around a trade. They would pay some dues. They'd worship a guild god, and they would gather once a week to eat, and they'd take care of each other's families. Now, Christians came in and said, well, this is a good model. We should adopt this, but we'll worship Jesus. And so they gathered during the week. They would eat a meal. They, they had an offering. They had weddings and funerals. They took on a familiar structure. And so it grew rather quickly. Now, in, in Rome, you could be any religion you wanted to be as long as you got together once a year and you worshiped Caesar. Now, the Christians, as the, you know, they, they get together for all these things, but they don't worship Caesar. And so eventually, this takes the notice of Rome. Rome goes, who are all of these freaky people poking us in the eye, following civic structures that we got, but they don't actually worship Caesar? Who are they? Well, those are Christians. They're Christians. And so Rome begins to turn on these Christians. At one point, uh, the city of Rome begins to burn. Nero sees it burning, but he doesn't put it out. Many people think it was he either started it or he wanted it to burn so he could rebuild all the altars with images of himself. 
So the citizens are mad because, you know, your, somebody in your family died in this fire. Nero didn't help. They go storming up to go get Nero. And Nero says, wait, it wasn't me. It was those Christians. They say their God is a consuming fire. He will consume with fire. So Rome turns on Christians. Roman Empire rises up against the children of God. Amphitheaters get built where the main show is Christians running around getting murdered for sport. Nero, the state party, would take believers and he would roll them in wax or resin and he would light them on fire. And and you'd walk out and that would be your light for the little shindig he was having. He'd throw you in the back of of his chariot and drive you around his whole property so as these people are burning so you can just get the whole feel of it. Uh, they would draw and quarter young Christian men, and as their limbs were pulled off, they'd walk up and say, oh, oh, you still want to follow Jesus? As you're laying there with no arms and legs because the horses just pulled them off. That's what they would do. What happens if you want to be a Christian? Reread John 15. This is what they expected. This is what they expected. And it wasn't just men who were persecuted. Women were persecuted as well. Uh, a lady named Agatha. You should all read Fox's Book of Martyrs, by the way. It's a great book. Uh, a lady named Agatha. She was a beautiful, godly young woman. There were advances toward her from a Roman official. And she says no. She's saving herself for marriage. Wow, what a concept. Okay? And so she refuses to defile herself. So this ruler arrested her, places her under the care of a prostitute who serviced a great many number of men, and she still refuses to sleep with this guy. So he gives her one last chance. She says no, so he scourges her. He burns her with irons. He put hooks in her skin, lays her on a bed of coals and glass, and then he doesn't kill her. He lets her die slowly in agony, put away. The lady named Perpetua, she's a pregnant woman, loves God. Near her due date, she is thrown into the Colosseum. She is gored by wild boars right through her stomach, kills her unborn baby and her. And this was to discourage Christians from having any children because we don't want this to go any farther. Now, not just the early church, but the last 150 years, more Christians have been martyred in the last 150 years than the last 1,850 years combined. Uh, In 2003, just stuff that's really recent, 2003 in China, uh, China goes and they take bulldozers to some house churches. I'm actually kind of irritated that we held the Olympics there because of all the human rights abuses that China has. Uh, But they bulldoze 200 house churches. They arrest 35 pastors of these house churches and sent them through two years of communist re-education. 2004, Pakistan. There's a group of women walking home from a garment factory from work, Christian and Muslim women. Four thugs kidnap them. They let all the Muslim women go and repeatedly gang-rape the Christian women. And they say, don't report this. And then they let them go. Seven girls between uh, 16 and 18, one 35-year-old married woman. And the women decide, we're going to tell the police anyway. So they go tell the police. Their boss told them, if you tell the police, you'll get fired and there'll be much retribution. So they tell the police anyway. They get fired as well as 60 other Christian employees. You get raped, 68 people lose their, 68 people lose their job. Can you believe that? And they still keep trying, even to this day, to bring these men into court. But the guys just don't show up because in a Muslim country, the women's testimony is one quarter of what a man's testimony is. So they just don't bother showing up at all. In the Sudan, they kill these Christian men. They take, rape, and they slave out the women. They train little boys to fight in their military. And today, if you were over there and you had enough cash, you could buy a girl as young as 12 for 50 bucks. 50 bucks. Closer to home. I have known people who have come to faith and their families have disowned them. I have seen marriages fall apart when one spouse doesn't want to be married to a Christian any longer and that makes their spouse miserable because of it. But on the other hand, I have also seen people who claim to be Christians hide their faith from the person that they are going to marry. And then when they get married, say, I'm a Christian. You need to go to church. And that's totally unfair to the person that they married. Now, as Christians in the United States of America, I think it is odd sometimes that we feel like we get 
persecuted because we have no idea what that really means. We just don't. We aren't really persecuted. Maybe there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, Jesus says, if you love me, they're going to hate you. Well, you know, maybe we don't really love him and we're too much like everybody else. We turn Christianity into politics instead of a way of life that follows Christ. Maybe we're just worldly and nobody feels condemnation in our presence. Or maybe we're living in an age of God's tremendous grace and love and mercy. And he is kind to us and he is nice to us and he has spared us. See, throughout church history, God has used persecution to grow and strengthen his church. James 1, 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. In America, we hit trials and we're like, Oh, why does God hate me? And it's the exact opposite. In the early church, it was like you face trials. It's like, this is what I expect. This is what I expect. Today, we don't expect that at all. You know, it's supposed to grow your faith. We're supposed to persevere through these things. James actually writes that probably during the time of Nero. Probably during the time of Nero. You know, and so some Christians go out and they go, well, let's pray for persecution. No, okay? You don't need to pray for persecution. That's dumb. You, you don't pray someone's going to club you over the head on the way home. You go home and club yourself. That, that's okay. If persecution comes, fine. We'll take it. We'll live with it. Our hearts should be prepared for it. But I will tell you this, guys. You are okay. All right, you are okay. The fact that sometimes we can think of all these ideas and excuses for not doing what we're supposed to do and how everything in our life is just so hard proves that we are just fine. We are fine. We have too much free time on our hands typically, and we look at ourselves trying to figure out why we have it so hard, but most of the time I think it's because we're too soft. Some of us like to create all these justifying reasons why we don't live for Christ. And we say, it's so hard, oh, poor to me. And yet Jesus says crazy things like, pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we don't get that because we have a fridge full of food at home. Not many of us have ever had to pray, give us this day our daily bread because we have bread for today and tomorrow. And we don't even understand some of that. Jesus, give me enough meal for one day. We are fine, guys. We are fine. Sometimes, you know, even today, uh, some believers actually living in refugee camps with one blanket to their name. And they're wondering if they'll be alive tomorrow. And we say things like, oh, I was going to read my Bible today, but DirecTV installed HD and there's so much on. Oh, my goodness. It's me being sarcastic now, okay? Uh, In China, you're like, oh, my goodness, that's awful. In China, some areas have one Bible for a house church, and they split these pages up between all the people in their church. So if someone gets arrested, they don't lose their entire scriptures. And we have ten that sit in our house, and it gathers dust, and we don't even read them. I don't say this to guilt you, okay? I say it to motivate you. <laughs> it should motivate you. We are fine. This is where I'm going to be really sarcastic, okay? I think it'll be really funny one day if, if we, you know, we get to heaven and we walk in. There's all these brothers in Christ from like the Sudan and India and, and all this. And all the 21st century United States Christians walk in. We show up late to dinner because we were in therapy, you know, talking to our childhood. <laughs> have, our, have our parents have, have messed us all up and how it's all their fault. And they're talking about John 15 and persecution. And we were, you know, and like Americans do, we just kind of burst in the middle. Oh, oh, I was persecuted. Oh, my, John 15. I just clung to John 15 when I was persecuted. I was in America. You can't imagine how hard it was to be a Christian in America. Oh, my goodness. But thank God they came with a couple of books. Came with this prayer of Jabez. It was wonderful because it was short. And if I did the four things in it, I could whack God's pinata in heaven. Then I got a book. This is really irritating. I mean, I got this book called The Shack. And I realize that God isn't huge and sovereign. He's like an old woman. And made me feel better that God's so much like me. You know, so I pray the prayer of Jabez. And I realize the goal of the Christian life is to be blessed. That's the whole goal, right? Good thing we in America figured that all out. So I was praying the prayer of Jabez. And I'm on this bus. And this guy looks at me funny because I'm praying the prayer of Jabez. And I, John 15 right there. 
That's John 15. So, you know, I, I, I go home and I was going to pray about this, but it was prime time and Heroes was on. So I decided to watch Heroes instead. And they had a new car on Heroes. So I thought, that's what I need, a new car. I will get a new car, and that way I can learn how to pray better because I will be in, in a car. So I stopped tithing to my church, and, and I bought a car because I could pray better. And I, I, didn't, I was going to buy a used car, but I thought, no, not a used car. I've got to get a new car because what witness is a, is a used car? And so I bought this foreign, eco-friendly car because that's what Jesus would do. I almost got white or black, but I decided to get red instead because red's the color of blood. It's like evangelism. So I thought I'd buy a blood red car. That's what we do in America, right? Right. Okay. So I got a great stereo because it's hard to worship God if you don't have surround sound or remote control. So I went to the Christian bookstore and I got one of those fish. I don't know if you had one of those in Rwanda, but in America we had these fish and we'd put them on our car and it was an evangelistic tool because people would see it and they'd pull over on the freeway and just get saved. <laughs> For $1.95, I got to witness to 10,000 people. Never had to go through the mess of actually meeting anybody. Then I went to support my local Christian movie done by Mel Gibson. I haven't seen him here. I'm sure he's here somewhere. <laughs> but I was really excited to see a Christian movie in a worldly theater. So I prayed my prayer to Jared, my, prayed my prayer to Jabez, listened to my newsboys, got to the theater, saw my fish, and somebody flipped me off. And I thought, John 15 right there. <laughs> I almost walked away from Jesus because it was so hard. You know, this is how it's going to be. I just don't think I can do it. And a Sudanese guy will look at you and go, I'm going to show you persecution right now, buddy. <laughs> now, take my sarcasm for what it's worth. Okay? We are fine. We are fine. You drove here in your car. You heard me speak from Scripture for half an hour-ish. And no one's in here trying to kill you because of it. You will drive home. You will open your fridge. You will sit on your couch. You will watch your TV. If you're, if you're married, you know, you'll probably wish your spouse was smaller and your car was bigger or whatever. You are fine. You are fine. I have heard many Christians on TV and in real life pray for more stuff. But you know what? Most of the stuff in the world already belongs to us. And you will go home and you will get hot and cold water from your tap, which is a miracle. It's a miracle. And you will say, God bless me. And God's in heaven going, I have. Now get off your butt and do something. We are not blessed to be fat and happy. We are blessed to be a blessing to all nations of the earth. That is why God has blessed us. So that we go out and we live and we love and we give as Jesus did. To maybe those who don't have daily bread, we give daily bread. Those who need love, we give love to. And they may hate you, but you love them anyway because that's what Jesus calls you to do. God has been good to us. The worst story in this room is probably you know, not as bad as the average story in the history of the Christian church. We are blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. And how we, can you and I begin to do that? I think we begin and we pray and we say, God, help me to realize how good you have been to me. And help me to see ways I'm supposed to go and share that. If you are a person who always throws a pity party for yourself, and you're like, oh, woe is me. You have an excuse for everything. You're apathetic about everything around you. You should apologize to God because he has been impossibly good to you. I don't say this to guilt you. I say this to motivate you. This morning, as we come to communion and everything, I want you to take some time to think about all that God has given you. I want you to think about your friends and your opportunities and your food and your church and, and your love life and everything God has given you and say thank you. And then I want you to ask God to reveal somebody else to you that you need to be sharing God's love with. And then you pray for that person. And then I want you to take communion.
And I want you to honor God's call to be a blessing to this world. We come to communion every week because communion reminds us of what Jesus Christ did for us. You know, the, the God that we follow came in the form of human flesh and lived and died. Do we think we're going to get off any easier? The God that we follow is willing to die for us. We have to be willing to live for him. You know, the, you, you take that cracker and you break it and remind you of his body, which was broken. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So that we can be people who truly see the needs of how to love the world around us. I'm going to worship God through prayer. There will be some deacons and elders in the back of the room. And if you need prayer, if you're like, man, my life is just consumed with me, then you need to pray with them and maybe help them, uh, help, they can pray with you to get your eyes off of yourself and onto who God calls you to be. The band's going to come up and they're going to do some songs as they do this. Take a few moments. Pray. Take communion. Say, God, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to reach? Uh, we worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the very back of the room. And I will tell you this. Uh, as far as giving goes for, for Element, uh, we take 10% of everything you guys actually give to us, and we set it aside for church planting and world relief. Uh, just this last week, uh, we gave some money to a group that's uh, building that's doing some clean uh, drinking water systems in the middle of Indonesia. And they're doing this in the middle of four villages where a lot of people can come in and now have access to clean drinking water because of the money that you gave. Okay? So we are actually not... We don't just take all... We take and we set some aside so that we can make a difference as well. Um, yay. <laughs> telling me back going, yay. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we give simply because God gave so much to us and we want to be good stewards of what you guys also give to Element. And we worship God through fellowship when we're done. There's some great cinnamon rolls in the back. I don't know if they're still warm like they were at the beginning, but they're really good. So hang out. Grab a cinnamon roll. If you don't know somebody or, or feel like you're not connecting one, grab one of the greeters. Grab Lisa, who's running around. Grab me, you know, and we'll introduce you to some people and hopefully get you connected because also part of, of worship is fellowship with each other where we get to know each other. And we spur one another on to realize that even in times that are difficult, even in times when people are hanging from a cross, that it is part of the fellowship of the body of Christ that kept them going how they were going because they loved each other the way Jesus loved them and we should love each other as well. Let's pray. Father, this morning I do ask that we as a people would learn how to truly worship you as our God and King, that we wouldn't just look for the easy route, but that we would be a people who look for the place that you call us to even when it is hard. God, I ask that you would reveal to all of us, those around us, that we need to be loving and we need to be giving to. And God, the next time when we are a people who just run out and, and think, my life is so hard, that we begin to think what you went through to simply redeem us and to care for us. God, we want to be different. We want to truly be those who call your name and live by your name. Not just in words, but in actions. So this morning as we come to a table of communion where we remember what you have done for us, that we would be those who would leave this place 
and live our lives as you have called us to live. Amen.